You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Sunday, August 30th, 2015, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Hi, everyone. And Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan is unavailable this evening. Uh, we're recording out of uh, our usual time slot because uh, I'm going to be banished from my house for the week. They're redoing the floors. So you have to actually be gone for a week, a whole week? Yeah, like yeah, like pretty much the Monday through Friday. What? Now this is what your hardwood floors? Yeah, the hardwood floors. And the first, oh, so you won't be able to get access to my house. Only the basement. See, I was thinking about doing that over here, and now I'm not doing it. <laughs> Don't forget to remove right. your pets. Yes, That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good point. And your banana plants. And what about the bugs? Will that kill all the bugs in the house? That'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. Get the rats out now, Steve. Like, what's going on? <laughs> so I got to tell you guys this. My daughter just started her junior year in high school, and they gave her this handout, the homecoming dance dress code. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah, right? <laughs> uh, you see what's coming. So uh, the dress code is all about how girls should not dress slutty. Oh, sure. Oh. That's the entire thing. There's no dress code for guys, apparently. Of it's course. all It's only for girls, and it's all about, like, you must wear under undergarments. No commando? I wonder how they're going to enforce that one. <laughs> and, like, like, no shoulder, you know, no, the ski- skirts can't be too high, no cleavage. They, like, absolutely no cleavage and bold. And what? then they show, like, they show these pictures as examples of what not to do, and they're, like, these 30-year-old models, you know, for who knows where, <laughs> they, where they got these pictures. So, anyway... My daughter's uh, totally livid about it because she's a, a budding feminist. She's like, there's no dress code for guys. This is completely unreleased. You know, and she's, she's correctly saying it's, she's, it's totally creepy for middle-aged teachers to be comp- sexualizing the female students, and, which is obviously what's happening You know, if you, if you see like, the pictures and read the code. Uh, and it's completely obvious uh, even further because there's no dress code for guys. Yeah, it's that whole patriarchal thing of like, guys will they're just animals and they can't control themselves so girls you need to keep it in check so that the guys can keep it in check you know what they should do is they should stage a coup where like all the girls wear tuxes and all the guys wear like super slutty cocktail gowns yeah that's already in the works (laughs) amazing (laughs) they thought yeah she she said yeah the guys are already planning on wearing like you know stuff that is that the girls are banned from wearing because I love it. apparently That's there's no dress awesome. code for the guys. <laughs> yeah, and you would figure, oh, I don't know, somebody on the committee would be like, okay, you know what? We should at least like have a paragraph about like what the guys have to wear too just to make it at least seem kind of like there's equal treatment here, but they don't even do that. They don't care. Yeah, it's like something out of the 50s. You know? Yeah. And there should be a dress code for, I mean, it's homecoming. So they could easily say, like, you know, no basketball shorts, no, you know, wife beaters, or, you know, some guys yeah. might show up no not hoodies. in formal attire. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. Make it about what you should be wearing, mm-hmm. you know, rather than like girls don't be sluts, which is basically <laughs> what they're saying. God. You know, it's terrible. Also, they're going to have a hell of a time finding dresses that don't like show off their shoulders or cleavage or I mean, that's like formal attire or backs or anything. Yeah, yeah. it's all like that. And not that it's like slutty either. Like it can be very, I think, um, refined. Elegant. Yeah. yeah, elegant, but it still will show your shoulders. Like, what is this church? Well, guys, I, I agree that definitely they should have had stuff in there with for the guys. But how much of this 
is basically is partly because like for a guy when you go to a prom and you're a guy you're gonna wear a suit but i the overwhelming likelihood you will wear a suit and suits are by definition pretty pretty covering whereas there's just a huge range of what girls could wear how much of a factor do you think is that yeah, I agree, and that could justify why there might need to be a more detailed yes. dress code for the girls and for the boys, but not no code for the yeah, boys. And again, yeah. it is the emphasis on like basically not showing skin that stands out, you know. And again, the, the coupled with the pictures of you know these like sexy <laughs> models posing, it's it, make, it gives the overall impression that they're just sort of slut shaming and sexualizing the female students. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The 16 year olds picked up on it immediately. You know what I mean? Like it was totally obvious to them. Aww. Well, let us know what happens because if, if the, the guys do I, wear they're gonna, dresses, they're going to get pushback, is what's going to yeah. happen. They're going to get pushback. So we'll see. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. And they probably don't see it coming at all. Yeah. I know. I love it. <laughs> Uh, so we do have uh, some sad news. We just all learned today that Oliver Sacks died. Uh, we'll, we're going to be doing a, a, a more of a thorough discussion about this at the end of the news. Uh, at the end of the news items for the show, we're going to go through our regular program first. Uh, so we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But first, Bob, you're going to tell us about this week's Forgotten Superhero of Science. Yes, this week I'm going to talk about Granville Woods. 1856 to 1910. He was the first African-American mechanical and electrical engineer after the Civil War. Uh, he held over 50 patents, including the multiplex telegraph, which allowed communication between moving trains and train stations. Ever hear of him? No. no, I never did. Uh, now, some sources say that Woods was born uh, to a Native American mom and an African American dad. Some say uh, that it, that both of them were African American. So that's uh, I'm not sure how certain they are on that. It's also not certain how much formal education this guy got, uh, but he clearly was largely self-taught, uh, learning on the job for a lot of the jobs that he had. And he was able to become, and we're talking late 1800s, an engineer and uh, with multiple railroads. He was an engineer, and uh, he even became a chief engineer of a British steamer, uh, and he also uh, owned his own company, the Woods Electric Company. Also, he was a prolific inventor. Uh, many of his inventions were to improve electric wi- railway cars. Uh, and he even sold a lot of his inventions to General Electric, Westinghouse, Bell Telephone Company, really big companies. Now, his most important invention, uh, which he patented, was the multiplex telegraph, um, which allowed communication from not just from uh, moving train to moving train, but to the train stations, as, as I mentioned. Now, this was really critical uh, for safety because this would allow everybody to know where the trains were at all times. And he certainly saved lives he certainly because uh, because there were there were relatively frequent accidents because if you don't know where the, the train in front of you is or the one behind you then it just greatly increases the chances of some something really bad happening and this, this really uh, helped with that check this out thomas edison tried to lay claim to this patent but he lost the court case um he, <laughs> he's like no that i invented i invented this and he's and and granville's like i don't think so so uh after he lost the court case edison tried to give him actually a good position in the engineering department at the edison electric light company uh which is which is pretty cool but woods refused I think from then on, a lot of people uh, refer to him as the Black Edison. Um, now, he was uh, he was buried – this is interesting. He was buried in an unmarked grave 
And uh, uh, historian M.A. Harris found out and he was like, what the hell? This guy did so much. So we actually went to the various companies that that used his inventions and got donations from them and he got a nice headstone. So I thought that was that was pretty cool. So remember Granville Woods? Mention him to your friends, perhaps when talking about the Cook and Wheatstone system or maybe demodulation and local oscillators, you know, if it comes up. Yeah, I will do it. All right, Kara, another study came out showing that got to be skeptical when you read science studies, this one in psychology. Yes, and and this one was really interesting to me because my background is in psychology, and um, I always felt like when we were learning about uh, how to do good science and psychology, our backs were a little bit more against the wall and you had to be a little more creative and a little more understanding of statistics. And so there was this new study that came out in, um, uh, by the Open Science Collaboration, which is actually, uh, the Center for Open Science, it's a nonprofit that has basically hundreds of authors in it who work together to try and reproduce a massive amount of psychological science. So what they did is they picked out 100 different psychological science experiments from three prominent journals. And they basically attempted over the course of about four years to reproduce all 100 studies. And the results were not promising. Um, but, but fear not. This doesn't mean that science is broken, and I don't, I don't think that this means that psychology is not science. I think that what this really means is that we need to be doing a better job of looking at how we define a significant result and at publishing materials and methods sections. So here's the nuts and bolts of it. Three top-tier psych journals were um, dug through for, for different studies. So that was Psychological Science, Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, and the Journal of Experimental Psychology, Learning, Memory, and Cognition. So th- these are three of kind of the best psych journals to get published in. And across this massive study, 270 different contributing authors worked oftentimes With the original authors, they would reach out to the original authors of these studies and they would ask them for more information for original data for um, sometimes even their lab journals and definitely for a lot of help in doing translations and in, in attempting to reproduce these studies. Now, here are the findings, which I think on the surface and maybe even as we dig a little bit deeper are a bit abysmal. Of the original 100 studies that were looked at, 97% of them had significant results. So that means that they're, they weren't uh, showing an effect that was by chance alone. And they also had a really large effect size. 47% of them had a very good effect size. So almost all of the original studies showed that there was a significant effect in whatever the psych science they were studying was, and nearly half of them showed very, very large effect sizes. When they tried to replicate these studies, only 39 of them were rated to have replicated the original result. And there were a lot of factors in how what it means to have replicated the original result. But what they found was that it seemed to be the case that the stronger the effect size in the original study, the more likely it was that these uh, authors could reproduce the original results. And if you're interested in learning more about P 
p-values, which has have come under fire quite a bit and are actually being removed from some journals right now, and how we study effect sizes. There's a really great article in 538, um, Nate Silver's blog, by Christine Ashwanden called Science Isn't Broken. And it even has a fun interactive effect size calculator so that you can fudge your own data and you can figure out exactly how to parse it to get um, a significant value when you didn't think you were going to. There's also a great site called Dance of the P-Values. Have you seen that? Nice, nice. And it's all about P-hacking? No, it's actually not about P-hacking. Oh, gotcha. It's about the uh, irreproducibility of P-Values, the fact that P-Values don't really predict that if you replicate the study, you'll get the same P-Value. And it looks, it basically starts Mm. with the, it starts with the effect like you could there's a computer program where you could say all right i want to run a virtual experiment with this effect size and this many trials and then it generates statistically random p-values and you could see how all over the place the p-values are yeah even when you're operating in a in a paradigm where you know the effect size the p-values are not very reproducible so it's just it is a it, it definitely gives you a healthy skepticism about what p-values actually mean. Completely. And I think for for those who maybe are a little confused between us talking about p-values versus effect sizes without actually getting into how you calculate these things, a good way, I guess, to distinguish between the two, p-values are almost always reported in science. Effect sizes are not, but we would like to see more and more effect sizes being reported. So p-values actually are... Uh, maybe this isn't the best way to put it, but there's something of an all or nothing approach to saying whether or not something is statistic, statistically significant. It's, it's basically setting a line in the sand and saying, you know, if the P is less than 0.05, then it's, uh, likely that this is a real effect and it's not by chance alone. Whereas when you talk about effect sizes, you are not just, um, calculating in how big your sample size was, but you're actually talking about whether there's a lot of overlap in between the two groups that you're comparing. So it takes into account both the means of the two groups, but also the standard deviations. So let's say that you're looking at values from group A versus group V, and those two uh, groups really clustered far apart, you would have a, a good effect size. But if they were all mixed in together, and you were just using some statistical, uh, not so much trickery, but statistical methodology to figure out the difference between group a and b your effect size would be a little bit smaller yeah it's trickery a lot of the time i I mean mean, a lot of times it is but also there's a lot of what we would call maybe more implicit bias that happens in the science yeah yeah, people don't even necessarily realize they're using trickery yeah exactly we've we've spoken about this on the show a couple of times before i think p hacking is the is a great term for that and mm-hmm. we talked about that in the context of uh, exploiting researcher degrees of freedom, you know, w- which was the Simonson article, right? Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? That was also in the psychological journal where they said, yeah, if, if researchers are allowed to exploit a few degrees of freedom, like what comparisons to make, what outcomes to measure, how many data points to collect and what statistical analysis to use, you could manufacture a positive p-value. Uh, of 0.05, 60% of the time from completely negative data. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that, and you could do it inadvertently. You could do it innocently. You could do it maybe with a wink and a nod. You know, you're kind of cutting quarters, but you don't, you underestimate how much of an effect the P hacking actually has. But what you can't do with P hacking, or at least as easily, 
is generate a really robust effect size. Which yeah, you is, just can't. Yeah, it's hard to do that. So that's why I always say, well, I'll be impressed with the data, like like when about ESP or whatever. It's like, what would it take to convince you? It's like, well, I'd like to see simultaneously statistical significance, but also a large effect size, rigorous methodology, and independent reproducibility. Give me those four things simultaneously, and I'll take it seriously. But these razor-thin effect sizes, I never take that seriously because mm-hmm. it's so easy to p-hack them or even just to have a subtle systematic bias that you're not aware of in how you're looking at the data or collecting the data. So yeah, the effect sizes are almost more important than, I think, statistical significance. Yeah, and that's exactly what was found in this massive undertaking of trying to reproduce 100 psychological studies to the letter. What they found was that even though they saw that they could replicate some of those p-values or at least say, you know, we see a significant effect versus we don't see a significant effect, only – let's see, 39% of the studies actually showed a a reproducible effect size or anywhere near it. Mm-hmm. So 39% out of 100, less than, I mean, significantly less than half of these experiments were able to be reproduced with a strong effect size. And so there's, there's a great article in Vox where Julia Bellas actually interviewed the first author and, and asked her, you know, what is your finding of this? Do you think that this means that psychology is, is not good science? Or do you think that we need to be really nervous about this? And I think one of the things that he said that was really important was that we need to change the way that we report science because oftentimes this is not done intentionally and it's going to keep wiggling its way into the system until we change the way that we report science. And just like um, I think a conversation we were having a couple of weeks ago, Steve, uh, there's been this real push, even in the psychological sciences, to publish ahead of time your study design. Mm-hmm. To say, this is what I'm going to do. Because a lot of times what happens is people sort of change their study as they look at the incoming data. Yeah, And that's where you see positive results that might not necessarily be positive. Yeah, it takes away the degrees of freedom, which is critical. Mm-hmm. Critical. Otherwise, the numbers really don't mean anything. The statistics don't matter because you're, you're actually – it actually breaks the statistics when you do that. If you give yourself the ability to wiggle – after you look at data, then the statistics don't mean what you say they mean. The, the, that p value only really has meaning if you made all the decisions before you looked at a single point of data. And I think people, even researchers, don't always completely get that. I question though, Kara, like how much mm-hmm. time other people, other researchers, scientists would put into helping other scientists tweak their entire study. I don't know yes or no which way the wind blows when that you know comes down the pike. Would they do it? Would they not? You know what's what's the purpose of the scientific community when presented with someone's you know upcoming study and their methodology? Well, in this study especially, like I said, there are 270 contributing authors, and they did say not all of them were able to contact the original authors and work side by side with them to reproduce the studies well. But that's that's exactly why this lead author was saying, we need to have better publication of what the methods are ahead of time, and we need to have way better supplemental data in the materials and methods sections mm-hmm. of these articles, so that in the future, if somebody wants to replicate a study or they want to get 
information from an original study's design and adapt it. They're not having to chase down the original author who may have moved institutions. They may have passed away. They may have had a fried hard drive and lost all their data. I mean, a lot of stuff can happen. And we just kind of now assume that the, um, you know, the results and discussion is, is everything we glean from that from that experiment. But no, we need the method section. It's gotten to the point now where the method section is written in a smaller typeface at the end of a lot of these studies because people don't even want to read them. And you know, I think, Jay, another thing to your point is the original authors should want, in a robust scientific community, they should want their studies to be reproducible. They should want other authors reaching out to them and being able to try and reproduce them because that's only going to reinforce that they found a significant finding and it's only going to fold into a theory later on down the line. And Jay, to get to, if there's a bigger point to your question, it's that in, if you look at science as an enterprise, uh, there's, Probably an optimal balance somewhere between ex- doing new exploratory research, trying to push the envelope, and doing re- uh, reproductions to try to uh, – rep- and doing replications to try to make sure that what we have discovered is reliable and actually true. Uh, and I, and there's a lot of people who think that the balance has shifted too far towards the new and sexy studies mm-hmm. and away from the boring replications. And I, I completely agree. And I think that a lot of times what happens is that these individual authors feel like they're drowning because they want to do that, but there's so much pressure yeah. to, to do the new sexy thing. There's so much pressure from within the university. There's pressure from within the professional societies and within the journals. The onus really has to be, I think, on the group as a whole, and they need to make a decision to say, you know, this journal is only going to publish 50% new new research and 50% re- or, or whatever those numbers, you know, yeah. the group of people come up to be. Because uh, until that changes, I think there's just there's always going to be this pressure to just find something, find a yeah. significant result that looks sexy, that has a good headline around it and, and churn that out. Right. And again, this is not about science being broken. It's just about being inefficient because this is inefficient. Yeah. It does work itself out eventually, but we're just – that balance is not tweaked the the way it should be. Um, Okay. Let's move on. Jay, this this is a a quick but interesting item. This is a a new study looking at a a sleep drug that uh, researchers are saying may have other uses. Have you guys seen the movie Limitless? Oh, yes. I loved it. Yeah, Carrie, you'd love it. It's, you know, I guess I shouldn't give you the spoiler then, huh? But this is like one of those movies where I'm going to have a problem with the premise, right? Like they take some sort of pill and then their brain, they use 100% of their brain instead of no, 10%. No, they don't do that. Which they is don't a do misnomer. That stupid, okay, they good. don't do the stupid 10%, 100% thing. <laughs> yeah, but they, is, they do another stupid thing, but go ahead. But <laughs> in essence, you know, and this, my news item is about, um, you know, taking a drug to enhance your brain. In the movie, okay. yeah, I mean, it's a movie. So they, they go into a, a profound direction. But, you know, I don't know if drugs like, you know, like the one in Limitless, right, will ever exist. Probably not. Who the hell knows? But there are drugs that affect today that affect how well our minds work in one way or another. Um, a drug Caffeine. called Modafinil. Did I pronounce that correctly, Steve? Modafinil. Thank you, doctor. Modafinil originally uh, developed to help people that have sleep disorders, and it was found to also give some people a mental boost. And that coupled with a low incidence of side effects. And you might ask, why shouldn't um, 
Why shouldn't we all be taking drugs like this? Are there any concerns about it, about people taking drugs to improve cognitive function? So let me dig in a little bit about the, the drug here. So modafinil is sold as uh, Modavigil, Allertec, and Provigil. And it's prescribed to people who have sleep disorders like uh, narcolepsy and sleep apnea. Um, I also read that some people who have um, just work shifts that are, you know, whatever, they might work the late shift and they might work the night shift. And this could give them bad sleep habits and screw up their sleep cycle so they could be prescribed this medication. Now, the effectiveness and safety of the drug has been significantly tested and approved for um, uses to treat sleep problems. But this does not stop people, commonly students, from finding ways to get their hands on the drug for other nootropic reasons. Nootropic meaning, you know, brain boosting, brain enhancement is it, reasons. Is that nootropic? Is that N O O? Yeah, it's not new. It's nootropic. No, this is new. That's why I said that. <laughs> is, is, that it, is that like a bullshit term, nootropic? No, it, no, just it's it has a, trendy. Ha- you know, yeah, it has a lot of different meanings though. It's kind of loose. But, uh, I feel like it's. I always hear about it in context of like supplements that are bullshit. There are drugs that do enhance cognitive function, right? So it's a legitimate field of pharmacology. But then the it term is. the and term becomes you know just a marketing hype term then for bullshit. As but within said. that field, those pharmacologists actually use the word new no nootropic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, cool. I wasn't sure. Yeah, it's not like nutraceutical, you know, where it's kind of like a made-up ah, bullshit marketing yeah. term. <laughs> okay. Yeah, nutraceutical. So there are two, re- <laughs> two, two researchers, uh, two two people. Now, God, this guy's got an interesting first name. Ru-er-reed Battle Day. What? Right? Yep. That's and awesome. Anna so Catherine Brem. I know, it's, it is cool. Anna Catherine Brem, um, and they're from the University of Oxford and Harvard Medical School, and they analyzed research papers that had information about modafinil and its effects on cognitive performance. So the papers span from January 1992 to December 2014, and of those papers, they found 24 studies dealing with different cognitive benefits like planning and decision-making, flexibility, um, learning, memory, creativity, and check this out. This is a, now this is one hell of a word. So the details of their review can now be found in the Journal of European of European College of Neuropsychopharmacology. That is yeah. a freaking awesome word. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. I, it's I remember it's taking really that long. class in college. I felt really cool. Like I remember how cool it felt to have that on my transcript. Previous the previous studies were able to show that modafinil. You know, it improved cognitive function in people who were in need of sleep and looking specifically at results about people who were not sleep deprived showed, it showed the following. Modafinil had zero effect on working memory or flexibility of thought and it did improve decision making and planning. The effects varied but were particularly positive. The subjects engaged in if the people who they studied engaged in longer and complicated tasks. So the, the more rigorous the thing was that you were trying to do and the harder it was and the longer you did it, the better the drug worked. That makes total sense. Let me tell you why. Because how these stimulants work is they don't make you smarter. You know what I mean? So there's different kinds of ways we can affect the brain that might have a cognitive effect. There are drugs that actually enhance the neurotransmitters that are involved in memory function that they may actually improve 
your ability to like recall memories, and those are drugs that we use to treat things like Alzheimer's disease. The stimulants don't do that, right? They don't improve your memory. They don't really improve your cognitive function. What they do is they just stimulate your brain. Um, and because the frontal lobes, which are engaged in executive function, things like maintaining on task for long periods of time, exactly what you're describing, they, they are especially responsive to stimulants or just, you know, the, there's a noticeable effect. So that's why we use stimulants to treat things like ADHD, you know, attention deficit. So that, that's this approach using provigil, you know, modafinil or, or a CNS stimulant. It's especially good for people who are just have mental fatigue overall or who have like difficulty with concentration and maintaining focus, but it doesn't really enhance their memory. Or, you know, again, make them smarter. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's almost like it brings them back to a baseline. It doesn't take them beyond. So one of the researchers, Battleday, said, this is a quote, this is the first overview of modafinil's actions in non-sleep-deprived individuals since 2008, and so we were able to include a lot of recent data. Interestingly, we found that the type of test used the types of tests used to assess modafinil's cognitive benefits has changed over the last few decades. In the past, people were using very basic tests of cognition developed for neurologically impaired individuals. In contrast, more recent studies have, in general, used more complex tests. When these were used, it appears that modafinil more reliably enhances cognition, in particular higher brain functions that rely on contribution from multiple simple cognitive processes. The authors... uh, they came to two conclusions. They said, owing to so very few side effects, modafinil should officially be recognized as safe and genuine cognitive enhancer. And two, new ways of testing supranormal cognition, i.e. brain-enhanced cognition, need to be Ooh. developed. Yeah, so baby. we kind of danced around this, Steve, but there is a, a underlying question here that I'm really dying to hear what you guys have to say, and particularly you, Steve, of course, is the question is, are there any ethics behind the use of a drug to simply enhance human cognition? Well, I mean, you have to look at the long-term effects. A lot of times, these kind of effects develop tolerance, you know, so it doesn't work as well over time. Caffeine is the most notorious for that. You basically get tolerant to the stimulant effect of caffeine in about three weeks. Yeah, then you're just feeding the monster, getting back to your baseline. You're just and staving off withdrawal, basically, at that point, yeah. yeah. But this is different. This is a, you know, this drug is actually a lot better than caffeine. It also is a more specific stimulant, so it has fewer. That's why it has fewer side effects. So it's interesting, you know. You know, if we get to that point where it's you know it really is you know self, it really is safe and and doesn't have a lot of tolerance. It, you know, what are the ethical questions? I don't have a simple answer for you. I think it's it. You know, the short answer is it depends. Yeah, I guess I'm glad that uh, on you, context, you, know. you didn't have an answer. Yeah, it is contextually you have to know a lot more about the drug. You know, if we we could throw in a lot of things right now just having fun with the idea. Like, yes, it would be totally safe and all that. But yeah. the fact of the matter is we don't know that. And the authors even point that out. It's yeah. not licensed for this use. Don't use it for this. There's a lot more studying that needs to be done. And right. they, there's I mean, also think some, about it. Talk about the ethics of it, Jay, but – that's what caffeine is. Caffeine is a legal drug that's massively used as a brain stimulant by a lot of people. And we don't, we don't think for a second about the ethics of caffeine use, right? 
Yeah. Well, caffeine is also very cheap and easy to get a hold of. And when I when I have conversations about these kinds of ethical dilemmas, I often think about where the divide is between rich and poor and how that can have an effect on the future as well. Especially, I think it comes up even more often when we talk about um, like genetic engineering and, de- and making designer babies and things yeah. of that nature, is that you're going to have a whole class of people who have access to these drugs and technology because they're more financially stable. And then you're going to have areas where where people are actually having more children into poverty. You're just going to see that divide between rich and poor uh, dig deeper and get wider. Yeah, yeah I agree. It is Absolutely. an expensive drug, but it'll come off patent eventually. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So a few few interesting things here, guys, uh, that that I think need to go along with this discussion are there are other like Steve said, there's other smart drugs uh, out there: modafinil, Adderall, Ritalin, Dextrodrine. Oh, dexedrine like speed, right? Like these are all speed. speed. These are all yeah. speed. <laughs> but those are the older stimulants that are not as specific as as the modafinil, and so that they have more side effects. Yeah, more dangerous. You know, I hate to I hate to kind of put it in this scope, but it's like you know, culturally, drugs are you know these types of drugs are being more they're they're out there, they're easier to get, you know, that type of stuff. It's just more people are using them and don't think much about it, and I think yeah. that's crazy. It's crazy, guys. If you're in school. Somebody offers you a drug that'll help you. You know what? Freaking study harder and stay and don't do it because you don't know what the hell that stuff's going to do to you. Well, here's another here's another aspect to this uh, health wise. Yeah, I think that most people, especially if, again, if you're young and healthy, right? If you're in your your teens or twenties and you're in school mm-hmm. and you're not alert, chances are you're not alert because you're not sleeping enough or mm-hmm. well enough. If there, but there, if, if there's a pill that could make you feel alert. That's a lot easier than fixing your sleep problems. And so that essentially re, re, eliminates some of the incentive for addressing your sleep issues. But it's probably true. I mean, the, the data suggests that, you know, lack of sleep has a host of health problems and it's one of those things that shortens your lifespan. People will essentially be ignoring their sleep issues with all the host of health problems they have because the one problem that they're most acutely aware of, that they're not alert, is easily treatable symptomatically with a medication. Mm-hmm. Rather, so they'll they'll just take the pill rather than fix their sleep, and that that's not a good thing. So what do you think, Steve? I mean, this is a little off topic, but I've always been interested in this. I've read multiple studies that that seem to have the result that the school day, as it's structured right now, is not optimal for young children. Yeah, there's a lot of study. Yeah, I mean, this is a different topic. We don't really have time mm-hmm. to get into. But I'll just say very quickly: there's a lot of research that's beginning to show that the school day really is suboptimal. High school starts too soon. There was just a study that came out that showed that students did better with a four-day work week than a five-day school week. Uh, It seems like that the kids just don't have enough time to really optimally do their work. I know my daughter, again, she's a junior, and she's had second day of school, and she's overwhelmed. I mean, she literally Mm -hmm. spent her entire weekend doing homework. So anyway, it seems like it's a little bit out of balance. You know, yeah. there, there isn't anybody also coordinating. It's like each teacher is doing their own thing and they're not necessarily coordinating with each other. So, And, and it's not evidence-based. I mean, the, the yeah. school year, the school day, it's all just tradition. Like yeah, when exactly. do they start? When do they leave? It's not evidence-based at all. It's all tradition-based, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, or fad-based, even worse, you know. All right, Bob, I understand that physicists are claiming that they've finally broken the standard model. That's kind of what they're claiming. And uh, I'm 
pretty excited about it. Uh, just to sum it up quickly, researchers have produced a distinct confirmation of an anomaly in particle physics that no theory has predicted. And the question is, is this the final evidence of the new physics that we have been searching for? And that when I saw the title of this article, I'm like, I'm talking about that. Because uh, I've been th thinking about this for many, many years, and it's it's a fascinating story, and it could just open up to s so many new doors uh, for physics. So the, the big thing, the mo one of the most important things in the story is the standard model of physics, uh, which has been amazingly successful for many decades. It basically talks about the particles and forces of the universe and their interactions. And this this model has pretty much reduced everything, I think, uh, over a hundred different particles down to twelve fundamental particles. Everything is either six quarks or six leptons. Uh, that's pretty much it. Plus all, all the force carriers, of course, uh, that mediate the interactions between them, photons, gluons, gravitons, etc. Uh, Higgs, the Higgs boson slash field, that was the last big particle predicted by the standard model that was found. And it's kind of like left an opening, like, well, they were searching for this previously, but now it's like, wow, we really got to do something about this. Uh, and that's one reason is because the standard model doesn't explain everything. It doesn't, it doesn't talk about gravity. It doesn't talk about dark matter and dark energy. So huge, huge holes in the standard model. It works as far as it goes, but it doesn't go deep enough. Exactly. Or maybe, maybe perhaps wide enough. It would okay. be a little bit better. So now it looks like we may have some, some decent evidence for, for some physics beyond the standard model. And it starts with, uh, the, uh, Large Hadron Collider, of course. Uh, re yep. researchers have gone through data collected by the LHCB detector at the Large Hadron Collider. And they were looking at data from 2010 to 20, to 2013. This is the, the first run. They're not even, they weren't even looking at the stuff that, that's being produced now. And, uh, they, they went through that stuff and they found some interesting things. Now, you have to understand what the LHC does very quickly. It just, it smashes protons together and looks at the debris. That's pretty much what, what, what they're doing. But the debris that they're looking at, though, isn't just debris from protons. It's not like if you smash two toy cars together and you're like, oh, look, I found some wheels over here. I found some seats over here. No, it's more like smashing two uh, toy cars together and then finding enough parts for three or four cars in the debris. It's like, whoa, what, 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 how did that happen? And that's, and I'm sure a lot of you would know that that's from essentially E equals MC squared. The energy of motion put into the colliding protons comes out as mass. So you put in energy, you get more mass. So that's why there's just so much stuff being produced. And here's something that I really wasn't to, that I kind of learned just the past couple of days, it, the collisions aren't very straightforward. You're not colliding protons, right? You're colliding what? You're colliding quarks. Obviously, each, each proton has three, has three quarks, but you're, you're also colliding f the force carrying gluons. They also uh, are involved in the collisions. And there's even more than that. The gluons themselves are constantly morphing into quark, anti-quark virtual particles, and they're part of the collisions as well. So you've got just a simple proton. You've got all sorts of different collisions that could happen. Quark on quark, quark on gluon, gluon on, on uh, anti-quark, all these different things. So that's why you've got such a plethora of debris coming, at, coming out. Some of the particles that come out are mesons. So these are, this is uh, a quark, anti-quark particle that lasts for just a fraction of a microsecond. It just briefly pops into existence and then decays. And it's that decay that this experiment has been looking at. Because when a meson decays, some of the particles that it decays into are what's called leptons. 
Now, everybody should know what leptons are. They're, they're awesome. They're fundamental particles. And there's, there's two types of them. There's a charged and uncharged. And the most famous of the charged leptons is what? It's the electron. That, that of course is the, one of the, oh my God. It's just the, without the electron, nothing, nothing would be, would be the same. Le- electrons are tied to all chemical reactions that happen. And it's also the basis, of course, of all of our electronics. I mean, what, what's an, you know, what's an electronic device without electron? It's the most famousest of leptons. Yeah, the most famousest. <laughs> so, so, but, the, but an electron is only one type of charged lepton. There's two others that are, that are electron-like. Uh, one of them is the muon, which is 105 times as massive as the electron, but it's unstable. It only lasts for a couple millionths of a second. The other type of charged lepton is a tau. And, uh, that is similarly unstable, but get this, it has a mass of 1,777 times that of an, of an electron. This is a really, really chubby subatomic particle, amazing mass. So now we gotta go back to the standard model. The standard model says that all of these elept, all these leptons, electrons, taus, and muons, they should behave the same way. So when a meson decays, there should be no preference for more electrons or more tau. It should all be treated the, the same way. You know, of course, once you, uh, account for the differing masses. So this is called lepton universality, and this is a very, very important part of the standard model. Leptons should just should just be the same. There should be no preferential treatment. So what the LHCB researchers found was that the, the universality that's assumed could be incorrect. The standard model could be incorrect when it comes to universality because they found they found uh more of one type of lepton than another and another type of lepton lepton it was not symmetrical as the theory predicts that in and of itself is is really interesting uh but it could just be an anomaly i mean that happens in in these types of experiments all the time but there was a discovery in 2012 that magnified the the impact of this discovery another experiment in in uh, let's see in 2012 it's called the babar experiment at the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. Uh, they did a similar experiment and got similar results. But the really cool thing is that they weren't smashing protons together. They were smashing elephants elephants together? They not elephants, close. <laughs> get, get get rid of the just just remove the lafont. It's the electrons. They they were smashing uh, electrons together, not protons. And as and Steve, as you're as you're well aware, as we're all well well aware, replicating an experiment is great if you want to increase your confidence. But if you can replicate it using a different methodology, that's even better because then yeah. you, you really you can really be more confident that you have a handle on something that's fundamental. So what does this mean? This means, according to uh, Hassan Jawahi, who was a uh, professor of physics, and uh, I think he's one of the lead researchers. Bob. Yeah. Not Hassan Chop? Oh, Jay, don't even go there. It was Bugs Bunny. When I was writing this, Jay, that occurred to me. And it's and one of those things that's and stuck I have, in our minds because we yes, were kids stuck we saw in our it a mind. million times. Yeah. But I have a filter and I wouldn't have said that out loud. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Jay, that's fine. So... He said, lepton universality is truly enshrined in the standard model. If this universality is broken, we can say that we found evidence for non-standard physics. So, so this is the best evidence that I've seen 
uh, for for physics beyond the standard model. I'm not, I don't read everything, but this this is really fascinating. It could mean you know it could just mean that the standard model is wrong because it's unaware of some other particle or some other force that is yeah. interfering that is interfering with the Mason decay process. And if the standard model doesn't know about it, it can't account for it. And then if we discover them and find these new fields or particles, then uh, we could you know we we then the standard model could conceivably say, oh okay, of course this is what would happen. Yeah. So now we got to get a little bit back down to reality. Uh, this is, of course, this is great news. But remember, even though this is replicated, we can't just assume this is true. Um, the observed differences that have been measured have only a significance of 2.6 standard deviations. So that means there's only a one in a hundred chance that what we're seeing is due to just some some weird statistical fluctuation. So that's that's not even close to the gold standard. So they've got to be able to increase their confidence further, and and they're going to be actually taking more measurements from that first data set from the LHC. Um, and they're also, of course, going to augment all of that with all the new data that's going to come pouring in uh, from the LHC's second run, which is ramping up right now. So so keep an eye on this. This is this is pretty interesting. This could be this could open up a, a whole new world of physics. Yeah. What's great is that they're basically looking for anomalies. They're looking for stuff that breaks the theory because that that right. will point the direction. Towards new new phenomena, yeah, right. And anomaly hunting is great for scientists, but not for pseudoscientists. Well, the the thing is, that's the beginning, right? You start yes. with anomaly hunting. It's not the end. Good. You can't then declare right. that you have something. It's what you have is we don't know. That's by definition what an anomaly is. That's just the beginning of the process. The problem with pseudoscientists is they the treat the anomaly the as the end of the process. Yes, yeah. right. They that's, declare it whatever they want it to be. All right, thanks, Bob. One quick one. So this is this really caught my eye. A scientist, Marvin Rowe, recently ended a long dispute, a long controversy over the nature of cave drawings, or are there ro- not cave drawings? They're rock drawings at Utah's Black Dragon Canyon. Specifically, young Earth creationists claimed that there is a pictoglyph, a drawing on the rock of a pterosaur. If you look at the picture, it's like in red ochre on like these beige sandstone is what it yep. looks like. If you look at the picture at first glance, it looks like a pterosaur. It, it does. Uh. So you, you could you could see it. I mean, you could totally see it. It's got the, the two legs with the sort of wide pelvis. It's got a, a, a sinewy neck and a beak and a crest. And there's two wing-like things to either side. I mean, it's not perfect. But yeah, you, you know, if I showed that to you and said that's a that's like a crude drawing of a of a pterosaur, you go, okay, sure, I see it. You know, it's easy. Yeah, but to it see. also just kind of looks like a bird or a bird, right? You could say that as well. But even that, it's not what it is. So, oh. but, but so then experts looked at it. You know, people who actually know what they're talking about. You know, who are experts <laughs> in the cultures that were there at the time and the and the kinds of figures that they drew. Irrelevant. They, they looked at it and they said, no, there's actually five. Five different figures here, and wow. there's no bird or pterosaur or anything. So essentially, they said it's a picture of one person bending over to one side. Like what? so, their legs are the legs of the alleged pterosaur, and then their body becomes one of the wings. Then there's a smaller human figure on top of them, and with their like legs and body being the neck, and then their arms are out to the side, and that's the beak, and their head is the crest. If you can imagine that, and then there's this other snake-like thing, which is a third figure, and that's the other wing. Uh, so that was the dispute. Creationists saying, nope, it's a pterosaur. It proves that, you know, the ancient reptiles, pterosaurs are not dinosaurs, but, you know, the ancient reptiles at that time were 
lived at the same time as people, therefore, you know, young earth creationism, and then the actual experts saying, nope, you're completely misinterpreting these drawings. Uh, so what uh, Marvin Rowe did is he uh, did a further examination of these rock drawings using technology, right? So he looked, he did D-stretch, which is just a digital enhancement, a photographic enhancement, and he also did X-ray fluorescence. Now, what these what these did is allowed the red ochre pigment to show up really sharp, oh. because well, unfortunately, over the you know thousands of years, the pigments have bled and smudged, so you get this only this vague outline. So all the figures are kind of smudged together, which is why you could look at it and your brain sort of assembles it into one figure, but. He did uh, this X-ray fluorescence, and then you see the picture before and after, and the after picture where the red ochre is showing up in you know sharply, and it's obvious. I mean, it's you know, it's no question. It's five figures. It's you know, two human figures, a snake-like figures, then two animals. One looks like some kind of deer or antelope, and then another one. They're probably two deer. One has horns. One doesn't. Is that a big snake, like, trying to bite the guy's yeah, butt? Yeah, it kind of looks like that. It's some kind of snake-like creature. Oh, yeah, but, he has a scary mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, this is case closed. I mean, you know. Yeah, this you removes, can't, how do you fight that? This is where the ochre is. I know. There's no way to fight it. This is totally objective. It just removes the subjectivity from, you know, the, from these drawings. Great, wow. great, great technique. So this is over. Then the question becomes – Will the young earth creationists accept these findings? Will they stop it? So there's one uh, young earth creationist, Vance Nelson, who said, I completely agree with their findings and they did a good job. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he said, yeah. I, mean, I don't believe you. Really? No, it's what he said. He said, then he said, I'm disappointed they still referenced me in the paper because I don't stand by that interpretation anymore. So he's basically saying, all right, I, I agree with you guys. You proved your point. It's done. I'm not going to. I, you know, abandoned my previous claims. But there, of course, there are other creationists who haven't said that, right? Who are, who are still holding on. But, you know, so the one guy that, you know, Nelson, who, who was promoting it, looked at it and said, yep, I mean, it's undeniable. What can you say? Wow. We should get him over to our side. Yeah. Right. You yeah, know, I, he's, he's got I the workings have, of a scientist. I have yeah. had conversations with a couple creationists who, I think honestly try to be scientific. They're just overwhelmed with misinformation and motivated reasoning. But, you know, you can at least convince them on a narrow point because they, they understand enough about science and they're trying to be scientific. So like in a case like this, it would be insanity not to agree with these findings. It would be insanity because it's so blatantly obvious. You would completely um, squander any credibility if you try to hold on to your pterosaur interpretation in the light of this evidence. But they don't agree with radiocarbon dating. They've already squandered <laughs> whatever they had. Yeah, but well, this is just another level. You know, this is yeah. – anyway, very, very – I love the fact that the dispute, which wasn't really a dispute – a scientific dispute, but you know, you could see how a layperson could look at that picture and think, yeah, okay, I could see a pterosaur, you know. But now it's totally done. Science nice. has prevailed. Okay. You know, none of this would have happened if this guy was just a good artist. <laughs> well, it's that's the <laughs> or, tradition. I know what you're doing. That's, that's a joke, but <laughs> yes. that's the whole point is that the the experts recognized the artistic tradition and and could therefore properly interpret what was being drawn. Okay. 
So the last news item for today is uh, the death of Oliver Sacks. Kara, I was just doing finishing the post-production on the amazing meeting private recording that we did. We, George Robb interviewed all of us and Richard Saunders for two hours. I, I split it up into a part one and part two. That's available as premium content for our premium members. Uh, and in that discussion, though, you talk about the how much Oliver Sacks meant to you. Yeah, I was cr- like, I actually, and this is not common for me, but I woke up this morning and looked at Twitter like I always do. And actually, one of my very best friends who uh, just finished medical school had texted me and told me that she read that he passed away. She's on the East Coast, so she was up before me. And how sad it must be for me because she knew how instrumental he was and how I introduced him to a lot of my friends. And I, um, I was, I like started crying. Like I woke up crying. It's a weird thing because I've never met him. We've, we've crossed paths in other ways, like friends of friends and people that I know, even just now, um, his nephew posted on my Facebook. I I did a post about how, how instrumental he was and his nephew posted that he, you know, that, that they're all at a loss. And so, but oh my gosh like he's the reason i went into neuroscience he really Mm -hmm. is the first time i read the man who mistook his wife for a hat it was done for me what a book what a book yeah yeah it was great yeah he was 82 so yeah it's you know it's a good run it's a good run yeah it's not like cancer for a long time yeah yeah i didn't know that yeah yeah a long time like 15 years ago he had a a tumor removed from his eye and so he was blind um or partially blind that one eye in that one eye. Yeah. Um, and he wrote a lot about that, about perception and about, and he had always had, uh, hallucinations and had weird skittillations in his eye and would see things like colors and visuals. But, um, only since February did he find out that it had metastasized. So he, just the past few months was he, um, terminally ill. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had the same feeling like when Carl Sagan died, uh, never met him, but obviously he had a oh, huge God. impact in the same way. But you know, mm-hmm. that, that was, that was sad because, you know, Sagan was 62. Yeah. You know, so yep. he he definitely you could say yeah died way too soon. He too de- soon. you know would have been nice if we got another ten twenty years out of him. You know think about everything that's happened in the in the skeptical movement since he died, and he could have been part of that. It would have been awesome. Oliver mm-hmm. Sacks. It's all you know very sad that you know he had cancer and that he died, but it's not the same thing. There isn't that regret of he died too young because eighty two is you know is is a, is a nice age. Yeah, he wrote a beautiful piece about it in February in the New York Times. I recommend everybody read it called oh, My really? Own Life. Yeah, it, it was um, learning that he had terminal cancer and, and what it was going to mean for him for the final months of his life. Yeah. Really beautiful. Yeah. And you know, I've, I, I've, as a physician, you know, I've given terminal diagnoses to patients. And mm-hmm. uh, people who are in their 70s, 80s react very differently than people who are younger, who are sure. 40s, 50s, even 60s. And it makes perfect sense. It was amazing to me, like a couple of times, like, laid out a diagnosis somebody say basically you have like a two-year life expectancy with this neurodegenerative disease and you know one guy's like yeah i had a good run you know i'm 78 mm-hmm. whatever this is about you know that's fine we talked about the fact that the uh the private recording that oliver sacks this year published his last book april 28th 2015 uh, on the move which is an autobiography uh, it features a picture of him on a motorcycle in a leather jacket george harab was uh admiring his tailoring <laughs> oh yeah, he looks sexy. He's yeah, yeah. That was one, yeah. What an incredible picture! I know, love it. Well, even though Steve, I'm, I still, of course, it's, you know, it's sad. Of course, when anybody dies, but somebody that's accomplished, yeah, you know, you just can't help but lament 
the loss. Like, you know, Bob, what was this from Star Trek where they said every time somebody dies, a library is lost? Yeah. Yeah, I see um, it as a light going out. You know, it's one yet less, one fewer lights illuminating the world, you know. And especially if it's somebody like that I've been reading and I've been, it's like my, one of my intellectual sources. Like, that's, yeah, that I've, I've lost a mentor, you know. Yeah. One less person feeding me interesting ideas. To speak to what you were just saying, Jay, and hopefully this doesn't take t- too much time, but I just wanted to read a quick thing that he wrote. It's like, like a few sentences. You just said... I said, every time somebody dies, a library is lost. Yes, exactly. And so he said uh, in this op-ed, I've been increasingly conscious for the last 10 years or so of deaths among my contemporaries. Obviously, he was 82. My generation is on the way out, and each death I have felt is an abruption, a tearing away of part of myself. There will be no one like us when we are gone, but then there is no one like anyone else ever. When people die, they cannot be replaced. They leave holes that cannot be filled, for it is the fate, the genetic and neural fate of every human being to be a unique individual, to find his own path, to live his own life, to die his own death. Very profound. And I have to say, I've, you know, I've always admired Oliver Sacks for the career that he had. And in a lot of ways, it's like, if I could have a career like that, I would absolutely take it in a heartbeat. A, A neurologist, you know, neuroscientist, explaining neurology to the masses, an author, you know, mm-hmm. he he has been called the poet laureate of neuroscience, you know, of neurology. That's, I think, like, it's hard for me to imagine like a more fulfilling career than what he had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so respected just across the board. And he achieved something that a lot of scientists, most, the vast majority, never, never achieve and more should achieve that, that, that popular renown that, you know, that a lot of just regular people kn- knew who he was and knew of his work. He had, you know, a million of his, a million copies of his books are, are in print. I mean, a million of them. And he's, it's been adapted for, for movies and, and for the stage. And uh, so that that's that, that to me that makes it you know even even a little worse. And like Sagan, where you have somebody who is reaching across divides that other scientists just don't want to or can't reach across, and he was one of them that could do that. Yeah, he definitely had a talent and a skill and a desire to do that. And that's something as a community we celebrate people who popularize science well. And mm-hmm. he definitely, definitely is one of those people. He had a Sagan-esque quality. Like, even yeah. if you've never read any of his books, you, you've probably seen Awakening. So you've seen his work in, in film when Robin Williams actually played uh, an adapted version of him. Mm-hmm. But if you haven't read his books, I really urge you to start with The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. It's, I think, his... Um, it's very accessible, very breezy. It's awesome. And it's also, you know, he had this skill of writing science as, and it reads like a novel. Mm-hmm. It just it n- very few people can write nonfiction and it reads like fiction. And that's what always really attracted me to him. I read it real quick. I read a, a funny quote from him. He would receive about 10,000 letters a year, 10,000 letters. <laughs> and uh, he said that uh, I invariably reply to people under 10, over 90 or in prison. Invari- <laughs> invariably. Every time he would reply. <laughs> that is so good. That's great. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Oh, and one random um, thought, because it just uh, caught my mind as I was looking through Twitter. There was an episode of um, Star Talk Radio that I did with probably the closest I ever got to Oliver Sacks was an episode of Star Talk that I did with Neil deGrasse Tyson. And Oliver Sacks wasn't in studio with us, but he had previously done an interview with him. And so it was interspersed. And I got to hear all of this um, interview material for the first time oh, in this wow. episode. And Neil got him 
to the first time anybody had ever cursed on Star Talk, Oliver Sacks said shit. <laughs> and we had to bleep him. And it awesome. was awesome. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let, let's move on. Jay, it's time for Who's That Noisy? Yeah. So last week I played a sound. Now, Kara, I was hoping that you were just going to be so excited and say what it was. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, maybe a dream of mine. Mm-hmm. And I know that you watched at least five or six movies this week just to check it out. Uh, oh, yes, because I had nothing else to do. You just didn't stumble on this one. All right. Well, we'll see what happens next week. <laughs> so you've been taking the nootropics and like, you're, what, you're so smart now. For sure. You're so fancy, yep. fancy pants. All right. So what was that sound? Let me play the sound again. Very, very wonderful sound. What, What is it? Bob, say it. I know you know what it is. It's the weapon from Logan's Run. Do you know any other information about that particular weapon? Not really, Jay. I bet you researched it, didn't you? It was an it was an interesting. I remember it was an interesting effect because it was one of the few uh, fantasy blasters where you could see the flash at the muzzle, and then yes. you see the the target, but the, it's invisible in between. That's right, Steve. I, I thought yeah. that was interesting. The older version of me thought all of what you just said was very interesting. Yeah, that's right. Watching in the movie. Yeah. All right, so I'll explain everything to you awesome. very quickly. <laughs> it's called the Sandman DS gun from the Logan's Run movie in the 70s. The DS stands for Deep Sleep, which if you've watched the movie, you know that the gun has nothing to do with sleep and everything to do with killing people. Um, <laughs> so the guns that were produced for the movie actually shot a flame. <laughs> oh, cool. And the, a- the actors were horrified. Awesome. And... And pretty much every scene that you see them shooting the gun, they're scared because they weren't sure even when the gun was going to work or not. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, like that. Like it was like, is it going to work this time? Oh, it didn't work. Is it going to work this time? So there was like a buildup of of fear in the actors and it shot out these flames out of the out of the muzzle. So. I, I have so much more to say, Steve, and I'm sensing that I shouldn't because <laughs> I, just, I could just totally blow a half hour on this one gun. But it's an awesome looking prop. Take a look at it. Um, the design is, is wonderful. I write, The guy who designed it, I can't remember his name, but it's a really, really cool sci-fi gun. The movie ones and the effects are fantastic. The sound was unique. And yeah. uh, let's hear it for the Sandman DS gun. Yay! Yay! You don't have that one in your collection, do you, Jay? Um, I do not have one, and I know exactly where I can get one, and it's like a thousand dollars that you don't have. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, but and it's the last one, and oh my god! Oh no! <laughs> anyway, yeah, stop. Okay, so on to the next one. Huh? What was that? Let's play it again. Very short oh. sound effect. I could tell you a movie right now, but I got to hear it again. <laughs> Bob, you don't know shit. That's this week's blaster. Write me. Email me specifically at WTN at theskepticsguide.org. Tell me everything and anything you know about that sound you just heard. Who's that noisy is always going to be blasters, isn't it? No. Just like from now on, it's no, all no, blasters. No, all I'm, just having a, I'm just having fun <laughs> for three or four episodes. This is all in anticipation four? of Star Wars, Steve. God damn it, step back. <laughs> this is all in anticipation of Star Wars coming out this December. No kid is too young. No person is too old. Go to the movie. Enjoy yourself. 
It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week. This is going to be a fun one. I like this one. Uh, the theme is sl- Blasters. slang from the 1920s. Oh, jeez. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> don't slip me a Mickey, Steve. It's going to be four items instead of three. Iro- ironically, I prepared for that. Good. No, <laughs> I didn't. So, obviously, so three of these are the actual uh, actual slang from the 1920s, and one is not one I made up. I wish I'd finished Great Gatsby. Yeah, that would have yeah. helped a lot. Helped. <laughs> I, I okay. think I'm going to do good at this. You're going to do well? You think so? Come on. Here you go. Uh, item number one. A canceled stamp was slang for a shy girl or a wallflower. Item number two, blue nose was slang for someone who mooches off others in order to feign being wealthy themselves. Item number three was, is a jorum of ski. A jorum of ski is uh, slang for a swig of hard liquor, a swig of alcohol, especially hard liquor. And item number four, the term bimbo dates back to 1919 and originally referred to a macho or brutish male and only later came to refer to a woman. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, God. All right, Jay, you think you're going to do well, so why don't you go first? <laughs> the uh, the canceled stamp, you say, is a shy girl or a wallflower. I admit I have, I have not heard this particular term, but um, it seems to come from the vernacular of the layman. <laughs> <laughs> And I will concur uh, with Bob, who I'm sure will agree henceforth that um, that this one is probably bogus. But I will ho- put that one on hold and move on to other ones. Okay, the blue nose, someone who has who mooches off others in order to feign being wealthy themselves. That's a little complicated, don't you think? They mooch off other people to pretend as if they don't have money, so that they don't have to, you know, spend their money. They keep up with the Joneses. Yeah, I really like the third one, the jorum of ski, a swig of hard liquor. I'm just going to say that one is is. Science or fact, and the term bimbo dating back to uh, 1919 and originally referred to a macho or brutish male. I will also agree that that one is is fact science. So we're down to the canceled stamp or the blue nose. Um, I will. Th- I think the blue nose is the fake. Any particular reason? Yes, because I get. I can kind of see where the canceled stamp comes from. You know, but blue nose to me is just an oddball idea and a very odd. Turn of phrase. Okay, Bob. Uh, yeah, canceled stamp. I, I can kind of see that. The blue nose, Jay, that makes sense to me. You know, it's like a playoff of the expression if you're a blue blood. So, yeah. and that, so to me, that makes a hell of a lot of sense to call someone a blue nose, but maybe too much sense. Because, <laughs> I mean, I have nothing to go on here. I mean, a bimbo, that, that kind of is ringing a bell to me. I'm not sure. The Jorum of Ski just is such an awesome expression, but I just don't think Steve would just make that up. <laughs> I, I mean, you got to just go by gut feelings here with this, with this crap. But, all right, I'm going to go with Blue Nose as well because I think it's it's one that I think Steve would say, "Oh, they're gonna that one will make sense," so they're not going to pick it. So I'm not picking it. I'm saying that's that's fiction. Okay, Kara, <laughs> tortured <laughs> logic. I literally have no idea. So the the last one, the bimbo, seems like something I would have heard on Boardwalk Empire. 
You know, seems like you call a, a dude a bimbo and that's bad. Or maybe it's good. I have no idea. I'm going to say that that one's true. It just sounds true. Oof. For me, it's between the top three. Joram of Ski totally sounds like you just made it up. But also, it totally sounds like you're taking a swig of, uh, you know, some bootleg booze. Yeah. Just take a little Joram of Ski. I'm going to start using that. <laughs> yeah, if that's real, I'm going to say that all the time. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that that's real because I hope it's real. And then it's going to be between the canceled stamp and the blue nose. The weird thing is I feel like I've heard the word blue nose before. And I've never heard canceled stamp. But that also makes me think maybe blue nose means something different. And I'm a lemming. So I'm going to go with uh, with blue nose and say that that's the one that's the fake. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we have a consensus this week. Wow, All right. I, I don't know if that makes me feel good or not. But okay. Let me take them in reverse order since you guys. Why don't you, Steve? Yeah, go you ahead. guys seem to, to to swing that way. So we'll start with number four. The term bimbo dates back to 1919 and originally referred to a macho or brutish male and only later came to refer to women or to a woman. That one, you guys all think that one is true, and that one is science. That one is yeah. science. Yeah. It's yeah, not I've a false memory. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. so uh, do you know what, what the origin of the word bimbo is? Mm-mm. Other than it, the fact that it was used the way that you describe here, I don't know wh- why it came about. It, no. uh, it derives from the Italian word bambino. Oh, for a, for a boy, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. yeah, it makes perfect sense. Right, a bimbo. Right, it's male. Right, a female would be bimba. If it, you know, yeah. uh, if you were going off the Italian, and uh, yeah, so there was a reference to it being used that way in 1919, bimbo. And then the first reference to it being used to refer to a woman was in 1929, ten years later, and then eventually it came to re- refer only to women, and then uh, a male bimbo. The other terms, like a mimbo or himbo, those sort of yeah, yeah, came yeah. into himbo. use. Yeah, mm. so it kind of came full circle a little bit. But yeah, so now like a, use the word bimbo, though, that refers to like typically uh, a dumb blonde or, you know, a woman who's attractive but but is like an archetype of uneducated or unintelligent and maybe a little slutty. You know, that's kind of the the, the connotation. But originally it referred to, referred to a guy. All right, let's go to a jorum of ski. You guys all love that term. Jorum of ski for a swig of hard liquor. You all think that one is true. And that one is also science. Yay. Good. I'd be so mad if you just made that up. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I usually don't make up things out of whole cloth. Like I'll take it and mix it around. So the elements may – yeah, maybe I wouldn't have made up that word, but I could have attached something else. Maybe, in fact, I did that. We'll see. Um, <laughs> so pr- the word Joram probably comes from the Bible, uh, and refers to a, like a tankard, you know, like mm. a mug mm. made of, spe- specifically made of silver, but it could also then refer to the contents of the mug. Uh, but anyway, so the Joram is probably like a, like a tankard of ski being in ski is alcohol. I could not find the etymology of ski in the time that I Steve, had. I thought it was whiskey. Maybe, maybe you're right. I see so, you know, looking it up. I couldn't find a reference to tell me what it was, but that, that makes a lot of sense. A jorum of ski. So that one is science. Now, of course, in the 1920s, we're talking about prohibition. Uh, and mm. the, there was so many, the, the slang, yeah, slang and euphemisms for liquor proliferated during this time. Yeah. You guys have heard of hooch. I'm going to yeah. run through a bunch of other mm-hmm. ones. Brown, brown plaid, coffin varnish. 
Hair of the Dog, I think still is around today. Horse Liniment, Panther Sweat. I've also Ooh. read Panther P. Rot Gut, White Lightning, Ooh. Monkey Rot Rum, Gut. Tarantula Juice, Corn, Giggle Juice, Shine. That's obviously Snort, Bootleg, Belt, Busthead, Strike Me Dead, Bathtub Gin, Moonshine. Oh, it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Bob, a lot Bob's of like different terms. <laughs> <laughs> but Jorm of Ski was the coolest. Um, okay. So number two, Blue Nose, someone Oof. who mooches off others in order to feign being wealthy themselves. You guys all think this one is the fiction, and this one is the fiction. Yeah. Good job, everyone. Yeah. All right. So I, that, of course, leads to two questions. Yes. What does Blue Nose actually refer to? Uh, and is there another word that fits that definition? Hmm. So what, I, you know, like this is one of those moments where I'm embarrassed if I'm wrong, but I, I think I know what it means. What does it mean? What do you think? Take, everyone, take a guess. Tell me what you think. What does blue okay. nose mean? It's somebody suffering from frostbite of the face. <laughs> very literal. Very literal. Sure. Jay. Blue nose. It's someone like that brags about knowing people or something along those lines. Okay. Name dropper. Oh, because that's like a no. What's the other? Like a, a brown, brown nose, nose, kind of a gotcha. version of a brown yeah. nose. Ah, nice. That's that's where that. I like that. What do you think, Kara? I think it's negative. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it it's sounds like derogatory. Negative, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, it sounds negative. It sounds so I'm gonna say a blue nose. It's maybe somebody who is like like bummed out all the time, or somebody ah. who's like not you know that's like not bad. kind of like not the life of the party. Like he's like bumming everybody out. That is the closest to the correct answer. Yeah. Ooh. So it is It is a party pooper, oh. uh, but it's somebody who's puritanical, uh. Uh, and they're a party <laughs> pooper because they're puritanical. Somebody who tries to impose a strict moral code onto others uh, may come from the Puritan blue laws. Maybe, maybe mm, the yeah. um, interesting origin of that. Um, also, the term "blue nose" itself, so that the, the the connection might be to the blue laws, but blue nose is a type of potato with a bluish skin grown mm. in Nova Scotia. Interesting. Who would have known? And that potato is prude, apparently. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so that's all right. Now the other, now the second question is: Is there another term that means somebody who mooches off of others in order to feign wealth? There must be. There a blue, is a blue and, sponge, and you will recognize the term when you hear it. Oh, a four flusher. Ah, right. You I guys have heard right. that. Yeah. I've I've never heard that. Word I've heard that. That's I've like an old time movie term. Yeah, yeah. Like four flusher. flusher. That survived long enough that I think we saw huh. that in the movies. Yeah, yeah but right. I actually didn't know what it meant. I guess maybe in context, that I four flusher. It out, but. Yeah, I always thought a mooch. I knew of it like a mooch, but yeah, specifically to feign wealth. That's a that's a little interesting detail. Okay. Steve. Yes. I I actually just looked up the term blue nose, and this is where I got it from. Urban Dictionary says it's someone who always brags about how many cops they know. <laughs> and uh, I like to read the. I love reading Urban Dictionary be, because there's a lot of funny crap on there. But so that's, that's got to be a derivation of brown nose because the yeah. blue, men, you know, the blue. Yeah, yeah but that's that a, that's sense. certainly not from the 1920s. It's like a modern, right? Yeah. Okay, all right, but. It, at least I had – there was a legit memory there. Yeah, okay. yeah. Thank okay. You. All right. All of that means, of course, that canceled stamp was a term used to refer to a shy girl or a wallflower. Definitely yes. definitely a derogatory term. You know, I mean, what's more useless than a canceled stamp? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of sexist slang in the 1920s, you know. And why do they talk – 
why, why, just think about how people talked differently back then, not just the words, because you totally get that, but it's even the way that they talked. That's right, Frankie. Yeah. Yeah, but how, you, you how to, much of that is really a temporal accent and how much it is a movie artifact? Yeah, right. Well, you know yeah. what? Uh, I would recommend that you listen. I listened to a recording once um, by E.E. E. Cummings, and it was really funny because he was born in the U.S. Yeah. Like, he's American, but he kind of had this this air about the way that he talked which i think was like a weird academic thing around the turn of the yeah. century where yeah, people yeah. like sounded british to sound smart yeah well that's t- you know I-, I saw a very interesting documentary about accents mm-hmm. and they made the point that you know we think of regional accents but in actuality class accents are more dominant mm. than regional really? accents really really that uh, that a wealthy person in Boston sounds more like a wealthy person in London. That's awesome. Than Holy either crap. due to the lower classes in their own region. That and when you sense. think about that Boston, you know, with the open vowels, it's kind of um, like you think about uh, what's his name from MASH, um, Charles yeah, Emerson yeah. Winchester. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that kind of upper crusty accent, New York or whatever, does – anyway, it's very interesting. Yeah, um, in the U.S., we have a, quote, neutral accent that all broadcasters use and actors have to adapt. The Mid-Atlantic, <laughs> yep. yeah. Yeah. That's right. There's a couple of sites that are very, very funny, like just heavy slang, you know, writing from the 1920s. Like this one site that I found in my research said, how would you decipher the following sentence? The flimflammer jumped into the fliver and faded. You dumb mug, get your mitts off the marbles before I stuff that mud pipe down your mush and tell your your mall to hand over the Mazuma. <laughs> the sucker with the schnozzle poured a slug out before he could scram out two shamooses, showed him the shiv, and said they should send him over. Um, so some of them, like, you know what a shiv is and a slug. Nice, yeah. Mazuma, you know what Mazuma is? Uh, it'll, it'll make sense when I tell city you. City in Montana? Mazuma. Missoula. <laughs> money, money. Yeah, hand over the Mazula. Um, squirt uh, metal, you know, it's... Yeah. What's a schnauzer? A nose. Yeah, it's got to oh, be a nose. okay. Sorry. Yeah. So we were going over some of these uh, at dinner the other night. My daughter was reading some of these from the 20s and then from the 1940s. And what was interesting is I recognized almost no none of the slang from the 1920s and almost all of the slang from the 1940s. Yeah, hmm. movies. Yeah, that's what yeah. I thought. Like the because of movies that sort of that provides cultural continuity, but the 1920s are basically totally lost. You know that sort yeah. of granular culture of the 1920s is gone because it wasn't immortalized in movies. Is that is that the only th- reason, or was it just Maybe. because we have it? It's because our parents kind of knew the slang of the 40s. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. I also but, think it's like more – it was a time when literature would have been more gentlemanly. You know, it was like yeah. off – it wasn't typical to put dialect in literature. That's yeah, only wasn't, become wasn't more there typical. A, sort of a, wasn't there more of an every, you know, everyday literature like the – for the? Yeah, but I don't think we read that. Yeah. You know, I, I think that if, died too. I wonder if the modern digital age speeds up or slows down – the creep yeah, of language. Creep, and, yeah. I, th- yeah. I think it speeds it up a lot. Like there are words that didn't, you know, like that are in the dictionary now, selfies and Twitter. Yeah. And I think. Yeah, but Kara, of- I mean, like, let's go fast forward 100 years, compare, you know, the 100 years of the digital age and then the 100 years prior to it. And did uh, language change faster? Did accents change faster? Well, that, especially that's what I meant. English, because the etymology of most English words is not English. It's other countries. So here, just thinking about having a more global society, I think, of course, we're going to be able to fold more words from other cultures in. 
Have you guys taken this this New York Times quiz called How Y'all Use and You Guys Talk? Yeah, I have. I have not. Every, anybody listening yeah. and those of you who haven't, you have to take it. It's like 25 questions. It's an adaptive, interactive quiz that was based on all this data collected by the Harvard Dialect Survey. And it's insane. Like 350,000 yeah. survey responses. When you take it, at the end, it gives you a map of where you're from. And it did it, for me, it gave me Plano, like... Um, Plano, Texas, and two other towns that were less than 10 minutes away from the town I grew up in. Not even wow. Dallas. It gave me my suburb. That's wow. incredible. It's wow. insane. I bet you it'll it. probably nail us because we happen to come from an area that has a recognizable, very one-town accent, you know? There yeah. you go. And even if you've moved around a lot, I have friends who have done it where it'll say very... Sp- you're from Chicago and LA. Like, it yeah. knows, knows where, where you've you lived. It's crazy. Oh, I gotta do that. I gotta do that. <laughs> yeah, if I remember, Kara, it, it had me in two different places. One was definitely Connecticut and the other was New York. Interesting. Well, our mother's yeah. from New York and she infected us. That's why. Yeah, yeah. Yes, there you go. That's it. Exactly. What, what's or the site? <laughs> really quick. It's... um, If you look up y'all use and you guys... It's, I mean, it's a yeah. dialect quiz from the New York Times, an interactive dialect quiz, but it's called, yeah, How Y'all Use and You Guys Talk. Quickly, just a couple more. I just have to mention a couple more slangs. So what do you guys think a hay burner is? Oof. Isn't that oh, a redneck? I know that. No, a hay burner okay. is a car with poor gas mileage. A, oh. A gas sense. guzzler. Gas guzzler, yeah. What would, what would somebody be doing if they say, I have to go iron my shoelaces? Huh. <laughs> um, trying to skip out on a date, like I got to go wash my hair? Nope. Oh. <laughs> Trying to sober up. Nope. I'm going to go go to the bathroom. I'm going to go iron my <laughs> shoelaces. Euphemism from going to the bathroom. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, what does it mean if you say that somebody knows their onions? Um, that they are he knows good their cook? shit. Knows their shit. They they know what's up. They're savvy. They know what's going uh, on. Yeah. They know, yeah. He yeah. knows his right. onions. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I like that. Yeah. And this is a racist one, but I have to tell you. So, what's noodle juice? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> like it, I feel weird about it. It's a Beetlejuice's that, favorite drink. No, no, no. No, noodle juice. Um, oh, God. Steve, I, I think I read this recently. Is it like cheap hooch? No, it's tea. Oh. And now you understand why it's mildly racist. It's yeah, not what I was yeah. thinking, but yeah, that's a good yeah. one. Yeah. It's funny. I like okay. stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. On, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. A Sheba. What last one? Sheba. That's a dog. A <laughs> Sheba Inu. I have no idea. Sheba is either someone's girlfriend or a sexually desirable woman. All right, guys. Well, you did. You did all did well. Congratulations. That was a fun one. Yeah, I can't Thank believe you. we got that right because that was like a crap. Yeah, shoot. yeah, total. Yeah, it was a crap yeah. shoot. It's good, <laughs> uh, so I want to cover for Evan for the quote this week since Evan can't be with us, and I'm going to give you a quote from Oliver Sacks, who said, "Every act of perception is to some degree an act of creation." And every act of memory is, to some degree, an act of imagination, mm. which is a great way of summarizing a lot of what we talk about, The uh, that our perception and memory are is a creative process. It is mm. not a passive process. So, yeah, but again, excellent way of describing, giving people an understanding of how our brains work. Oliver Sacks. All right. So I'll see you all, you bimbos, next week. Yeah. <laughs> see you guys next week. All right. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. You're welcome. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. 
For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.